Welcome to The Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CAL. The Great Asian Pushback features stories of defiance and hope from Southeast and East Asia. Individuals, young and old, and organizations on the ground and online are assisting authoritarian regimes. There's our voices crying out for freedom and democracy. These podcasts aim to empower and inspire all of you out there who are shining the light on the darkness in this part of the world. Hello, welcome to the Great Asian Pushback, a series of podcasts brought to you by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats, or CALD. I'm Marites Vitug, a journalist from the Philippines, and I will be your host for this series. Cambodia is one of the most repressive regimes in Southeast Asia. Its Prime Minister Hun Sen has led the country for 36 years. In the 1970s, Cambodia went through a dark period under the Khmer Rouge regime, which presided over the killing of about 1.7 million people. Our guest today experienced the horrors of the genocide that killed her parents, imprisoned children, and executed people before her very own eyes. I will be speaking to Thierry Seng, a Cambodian-American human rights lawyer and author of the memoir, Daughter of the Killing Fields. When she was seven, Thierry and her relatives fled Cambodia. Eventually, they ended up in the United States. But in 2004, Thierry returned to the country of her birth, which is now her permanent home. She founded the Cambodian Center for Justice and Reconciliation, as well as Civicus, the Center for Cambodian Civic Education. Thierry will be joining us from Phnom Penh. Welcome to the Great Asian Pushback Theory. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for the invitation, Meredith. I'm so glad to be a part of this wonderful program. Yes, first, of course, we'll talk about your case because that seems to be the hottest news about you today, that you've been charged with conspiracy to commit treason, and I'm quoting, incitement to create social disorder and that you're only one, you're one of more than 120 citizens being tried. So please tell us about your case and why is this happening? The charges of treason, of incitement are prima facie absurd. It's ridiculous. It's not based in fact, it's not based in law. Um, and as you mentioned, I'm not the only one, it's a mass trial. It's the first time in recent Cambodian history since the Khmer Rouge really that we have um, this mass trial um, of at least 120 uh, dissenting voices, including mine. Uh, we can't keep track because every day seems like there's a new case arising. Someone has created, uh, has um, perpetrated incitement or committed treason. Um, my case is one of the many. Um, it took me by surprise, um, uh, relatively speaking, because 
I had not been very active in civil society because of the overall repressive environment here in Cambodia. Um, so it did take me um, by surprise um, initially. Um, but then um, it was very opportunistic for this regime to come after me at this moment in time, even though I have been very active publicly um, in advocating for human rights and uh, being one of the frontliners um, in leading civil society on human rights, on rule of law, on justice issues. And I've had run-ins with this Hun Sen regime before, um, but never an actual court case. Um, and um, so these charges are absurd and it's unprecedented in recent history to have to be a part of this mass trial. So the charges are uh, conspiracy to commit treason, a very popular charge of this regime. And the other popular charge um, that it has been issuing left and right for dissenting voices in, in Cambodia and outside as well, whoever are um, opposing this regime. The other charge is incitement to create social disorder. So um, they're run of the mill charges now in Cambodia. Um, and I'm not the only one. Yeah, what is the trigger? Because you said there has not been a mass trial for many years. Do you, do you know if there's a specific trigger that uh, urged the government to do this? Yes, it was very, very opportunistic for this Hun Sen regime to come after me and to have this mass trial because of the overall repressive conditions and environment here in Cambodia. The press has been effectively silenced. Um, the journalists have uh, fled or have, um, have self-censored themselves if they are still within the country. For example, the, uh, this regime closed down Radio Free Asia's office. Civil society is also effectively silenced um, with the closing of NDI, the US Democratic uh, National Democratic Institute. My organization, for example, even though I have it on the book, it's, it's not really active. So I've been using social media and it's been more an individual without the platform, without the organization um, that allows for um, greater reach because of the NGO law, which effectively is used as a weapon, um, sort of like the, the sword that hangs over um, any opposition, any dissenting voices within civil society. And as you know, the only real opposition party has been banned by this regime. It hasn't been able to dismantle the infrastructure, really. And of course, um, it, it can't um, it can't extinguish the spirit of dissent and the opposition, but it has been banned. And as you know, Sam Ranzi, the opposition leader, is in self-imposed exiles in Paris. Moussakour is in exile in the United States. And many of the other elected opposition officials are either detained in prison or are um, have escaped to neighboring countries like Thailand, Malaysia, possibly the Philippines. Um, but uh, we effectively uh, have the opposition, the only true opposition party um, in the country 
banned by this regime. So it creates an environment where there is a vacuum of dissenting voices of support for dissenting voices. So I'm one of the very rare few voices inside the country. And this regime thought, ah, it's time to go um, after her. Um, before I, I was not a low lying fruit. I was not, a, um, um, so they, they thought, well, since she no longer has the support and supporting environment of opposition party um, and, and civil society of the press, um, it's ideal time to go after after me. I'm thinking that I would quietly leave the country because I also have a U.S. passport. I'm dual national, um, but it was a wrong calculation for this regime because I chose to stay. You've been to court, right? You uh, did you attend uh, some court hearings? Please tell us how was it? Were you able to defend yourself? You're a lawyer, or did you have to get your own lawyer? Um, I chose not to have local Cambodian uh, legal representation. I chose to self-represent because I want a direct voice. But I have um, a very famous international um, counsel in Jared Genzer who is known for his um, work to release political prisoners all over the world. Um, so I attended the first court hearing on Thanksgiving Day, November 26, 2020. And this is only 20 days after I learned about the charges against me. So 20, day late, uh, 20 days later, um, I found myself in um, the courtroom, initially the other um, the others charged with me um, thought, well, they're not going to show up. But when they realized that I was going to show up, some of them who were um, in country decided also to show up. So that was also a strong message to the regime of resistance. Um, I had prepared a um, a statement. And I started to um, to read uh, from this and the prepared statement, but I was cut off. Um, and um, I, but I continued to fight. I remember raising my hands as if in a classroom. It was surreal. It was surreal. But um, going in, I took the whole situation as political theater. So I dressed as if I was attending theater to go and see an opera and you know we always use the phrase this is um this is a charade this is a sham this is um politics so i wanted to act out what we have been saying that this is not a real court um it has a court scene but these are actors who are um who who have to go by the script written by the politicians so um because i'm i'm forced to go into this hearing, um, I decided to um, to physically show that this is political theater and I'm going to act, I'm going to play act as um, and, and play role my way into the proceeding to raise the fact that this is not real. It's not, this is not how a courtroom should be conducted. And if it is, it's a show and I'm going to be part of this show trial because I've been forced to and I'm going to exaggerate my role. Um, within the confines, of course, of respect um, of using um, uh, of, of using legal terms of using legal arguments which I'm prepared um, uh, as a lawyer I'm um, I have um, some background in 
So um, in the court hearing, it was it was communicated um, verbally and in my appearance that I don't take this court seriously as a legitimate court that is part of a show trial and I'm an actor in it. I've been forced to be an actor in it. But aren't you afraid? Do you have fears? You know, you might get detained. Is that at the back of your mind? I... I honestly can say I don't have those thoughts. Of course, I think about being in prison, but it's not fear that enters my mind. What I fear um, is the future of Cambodia, the survival of Cambodia. I fear for the children of Cambodia. I feel for the society of Cambodia. My heart breaks for the non-peace that has existed in this country for years without any respite. So if those can be termed as fears in that regard, yes, I have fears for the well-being of my countrymen, of my fellow citizens, Cambodians, and for the survival of Cambodia. But in terms of physical fear, um, I, I think more of what is the right thing to do. And that crowds out any um, negative thought of fear. It's not as if um, I'm blindly going into the process. I know what this regime can do and has done to my friends, to my colleagues. Um, Chivichia, who was slain, who was uh, assassinated in broad daylight, was a friend of mine, was a colleague of mine. He was a union leader. Um, uh, and other individuals who have been, Kaim Lei, who was assassinated recently in, a, in the la, within the past few years, and again in broad daylight, he was a colleague of mine. A few months before his assassination, I had lunch with him um, at the invitation of the British uh, ambassador, for example. So it's not as if I'm blindly going into the situation. I know this regime well. I have worked in human rights. I have been in Cambodia since 1995 every year, but moved permanently here back into my birthplace in 2004. So since 2004, is permanently my home. But before that, since 1995, um, after graduation from Georgetown, I uh, came here to volunteer to look into all the prisons. Here's the irony. I have visited every provincial prison in Cambodia in 1997 with uh, an, an NGO, a human rights organization. Um, and that was when we had road infrastructure. Um, so I, I know this regime. So my risks are calculated um, with the understanding of um, what this regime can do, of the, um, of the very tight space. But the question uh, becomes for me, I believe in these values of freedom, of justice. I've been advocating for these democratic values. I've been training political party, political party agents, um, perpetrators, victims on justice and reconciliation, on uh, knowing one's rights, exercising one's rights. So it became, the question became, well, if I believe in these values and I'm encouraging others to take a stand, and now it's my turn um, where the issue is so focused for me now, it was a non-issue because I had to stay and I had to confront uh, the, um, the issues. But again, understanding that uh, there are calculated risks, 
understanding that I don't have family members and, and in terms of I don't have my uh, husband, I don't have um, children, I'm, I'm, I don't have my own family, um, that where they can intimidate, where they can harass, where they could um, hurt. So that alleviates one uh, encumbrance. And the other is I don't have private property. I'm, I'm renting my home. This is a home that is a, a rental. So um, the only thing that they can do to me is me on my physical body. And But I'm a Christian. I believe in, in, in God. And my life is not in the hands of Mr. Hunsain. Um, and Mr. Hunsain is not eternal. Justice is eternal. And as, as a Christian, I believe that God is with me, Jesus is with me, and if God is with me, whom shall I fear? So it's, it's a non-issue in terms of fear, in terms of um, what should I do? My responsibility is very simple, do the right thing. So I guess you partly answered my next question about, you know, people are saying, why did you have to return to Cambodia? Why give up your life in the U.S. for a life of political uncertainty? Why exchange freedom for you know, Hun Sen's repressive regime. But maybe you answered it partly, but maybe to explain your decision-making process? I have not exchanged my freedom um, by moving to Cambodia. Cambodia is home. I feel very, very um, comfortable in the United States. I am. I am a very, I'm a product of two cultures. I'm, I, I'm very comfortable in the American culture, having lived there um, uh, as a child, as a young person. Um, but Cambodia is home. And the United States does not need another lawyer. Cambodia <laughs> does. <laughs> with, the U.S. is saturated with lawyers. Um but more than anything, it's uh, Cambodia is home, and I have not exchanged my freedom. Freedom uh, is the freedom of my conscience. The freedom of my mind is is takes primacy over the freedom of movement. And if I be detained, it would be the uh, the limitation of my movement but this regime cannot take away my freedom which is my freedom of conscience which is freedom up here they're more shackled mr gonsain and his officials are more shackled and more limited in their uncreativity by always using violence. I mean, it's so uncreative. The creative ones are us because we have to overthink and we have to think for them and then try to find creative way, imaginative way to deal with the very blunt instrument of violence, of intimidation, of harassment. It's so boring. We see it time and time again. Dictators, autocrats are very, very uncreative in that regard. So when you arrived back in Cambodia in 2004, what changes did you see? I mean, yes, you've been visiting it every year since 1995, but what struck you most as the big changes in your home country? When I moved permanently, it was um, an American law firm who, uh, who took me back. I came to work for an American law firm, a regional a law firm here in Asia. Um, where I was in private practice for two years. But I remember they, the company had sent a car to pick me up at the airport. And I remember vividly, um, as we're leaving the gate of the airport, of, of um, Pumping uh, International Airport, the driver turned to me and he said, have you heard? And I said, what? Chivichir is dead. 
he didn't know that I knew Chibichia, but Chibichia was so famous. He was the very famous union leader. And that was my introduction back to the United States, uh, back to Cambodia when I returned. Chibichia was my colleague who had been slain down in broad daylight by this regime um, at 10 a.m. near the Independence Monument. And it was done brazenly like that to communicate a message. So um, the environment was uh, was one of um, of violence still, but there was hope. So when I came back, there was a vibrancy um, of, and of the residue of the United Nations in Cambodia, UNTAC, that created, that opened the way for democracy to flourish in Cambodia. So I was, um, I was, I came into. Um, and riding that wave. And then two years later, I found myself leading a, a major NGO civil society that was focusing on rule of law, on reconciliation. And um, that was a very vibrant time for civil society. It was very robust. So despite the poverty, um, and there was a lot, despite the violence and the political wrangling, there was hope that it will be better. Um, and there was a vibrant society, civil society, there was a vibrant press, and there was the opposition. Sam Ramsey was very, very active um, and uh, since 1995 as the opposition leader, and he was very active then. So all the elements of support of the institutions that could help build democracy were in place, were active um, from 2000, when I came back in 2004. And through the years um, up until uh, 2012, um, the, and the, uh, uh, the run up to the national elections, it was very vibrant. We saw people taking to the streets peacefully in the thousands, tens of thousands, joining Democracy Square in um, in a peaceful manner, and they were helping each other. Cambodians were helping each other in terms of supporting with food. They were cleaning up um, after the trash themselves. So it was very orderly. It was very, very um, a, a unifying moment of great hope. Those were the days. Yeah, maybe can you tell us more about what you did upon arrival, you said you were very active in this uh, rule of law and justice and reconciliation NGO. What did you do to help the Cambodians? I mean, were they, did you do training? Or, can you tell us more about it? So when I went uh, uh, into civil society in 2006, the Khmer Rouge Tribunal was operating, began operation. So it, it coincided with what my organization, um, at that time we were growing, and at, at the height I had about 90 staff, local staff, and plus um, international consultants. And so there were there was a lot of funding coming into Cambodia on justice and reconciliation in light of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal, which is this mixed tribunal of um, Cambodian actors, uh, of Cambodian of uh, judicial officials and international players. Um, even though it's within the Cambodian court system, it's, it's not an international court, it's an internationalized 
mixed court. So it coincided with what I was doing, of course, with my background as a victim of the Khmer Rouge, because the, the tribunal was um, established to try the crimes of the Khmer Rouge from the 1970s. And as a person who lost both her mom, uh, both her parents, mom and dad, and having lived through it as a child prisoner, again, the irony that I should be <laughs> possibly be put back in prison, but this time free. No matter how shackled I may be, I will be free and as an adult. But um, so we were given the funding to go into all the provinces, each province, and conduct public forums with victims and perpetrators from that era, because of the Khmer Rouge regime only has temporal jurisdiction from April 1975 to um, the end of the Khmer Rouge regime, not before, not after. So a very, very limited time frame of about four years, the crimes committed within that time period. Um, and so there was a lot of interest because the the perpetrators were curious. Of course, they weren't telling us, oh, we were the perpetrators. But I know they, they were showing up from their comments, from their demeanor, and from the location of, of what we know of, of that particular um, uh, history. Um, they would show up wanting to understand, well, how large um, is the sort of like subject matter jurisdiction or, or the, the, um, the, the people who could be tried? Will it be five people? Will it be 100? Because, you know, to have the uh, lives, um, lost in um, close to two million, there were many, many bloody hands, not just five individuals, not 100. So they were curious, well, could they be pulled into court? And of course, the victims, they felt safe to speak about their experience. And of course, you know, and we were very, very conscious have, for me having gone through that experience to know that if we want put, um, victims to speak, they need to feel safe. They need to feel not be exploited just so that we can get their story. And we had a German consultant who was um, who had expertise in um, psychology with us during those three years of pub of conducting public forum. So that was one huge elements of my work of that period. And it coincided and it was given energy by the presence of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal. We're talking about international um, star judges coming into Cambodia. We had the former head of state of New Zealand who, who would come to our public forum, for example. Um, and then, so it, as you know, international courts um, are very few. So these international um, players, gain a reputation for themselves, the more that they um, are with these courts. So we had well-known prosecutors, well-known judges from all over the world coming to a public forum out in the boonies, out in a remote province like Ratanakiri or Mandolkiri. Um, and I was the facilitator. So we had victims, perpetrators. We invited um, provincial officials, teachers, monks, um, who could be, who are leaders in their community and who could pass on the message. And we also had um, about two to three radio hours per day. Um, we had the um, in, uh, the judges and the prosecutors at the highest level attending our public forum. And we had other civil society leaders with expertise in psychology. So it was very, very comprehensive. One, because we had the means. And two, I was very conscious of 
um, the different elements needed to start the healing process because we can we don't heal in one snap and it is a process it's i, I mean it can be a lifetime process um and i was very aware that trauma is tactile is tangible in society everyone every Cambodian um was is traumatized and i had ptsd i would say the majority of cambodians to this day um have ptsd and i remember being suicidal in high school in the united states because genocide was catching up with me you know i escaped and and survived so to to survive was half luck half the doings of my older relatives especially my grandmother who was a saint um but once we had the time to think to process that was when everything collapsed and high school was very very difficult for me so i understand the need to heal and um and i was very open about my traumatic experience and i thought well that's part of the healing process is the safety to speak and to express and so i was very conscious to speak about my own experience so that it creates a level of acceptability to say that i was suicidal in in, in high school for example that it's not a shame that it's not shameful that it is to a human you know to experience genocide and not to feel that's not human to experience genocide and to grieve to be broken up that is human and that is humanity but we can't stay in that stage we need to heal so i was and so in 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 hindsight um it was a blessing in the sky to have gone through that experience and now to be able to be in this um platform to be given this platform to reach out to the others and it also informed um, it helped me to continue to heal because again it's a healing process um you um, um one can never stop healing we can create new identities to help balance the victim status um the survivor status um but it will always my um my experience of course will always inform my present um situation um as all of our experiences inform our present situation and who we are today yeah what a journey theory i mean i i didn't know that you were in prison when you were a child i was a child prisoner oh, with my brothers seen, yeah you've seen the current prisons were these the same prisons or have they become worse uh, <laughs> I have seen, you know, when I um, visited the, all the Cambodian prisons in 1997, many of them were literally left without physical touches from years ago. So to call it medieval is to put a positive spin on it. The current prison system is medieval. It's extremely crowded. But what I saw in 1997 was of literally another era way past um the medieval age, the dark ages. When I was a prisoner, a child prisoner of the Khmer Rouge, we're talking about living in genocide. Mass graves, mass graves were my playgrounds. There are two acute memories, uh, pieces of memory that are my own. 
that and I have been um, able to capture it in um, in writing, um, and now so is my memory of my memory. Um, the two are one, the experience and the spiritual experience of losing my mom. When I lost my mom in prison that night, the last night about stay in prison, I felt the separation of body and soul. So I didn't understand it as a seven-year-old child, but it was the beginning of an, a spiritual experience. The second was the, the stench of human flesh. Because um, as a seven-year-old, my job during the day was to go and pick up dried cow manure for fertilizer. So I was given freedom of movement. I was only seven. At night, they tried to chain my ankles. Oh, where are the... Um, I have shackles. At seven, um, at the age of seven, they shackled. And they, they tried to shackle me, but I was skin and bone, so my my ankles could slip in and out. I managed to um, find two shackles from that region, from that prison area, um, a few years ago, maybe about um, five, six years now. And um, I, I don't know where I have it now, but. Um, so those are the two vivid, acute memories I still that are personally my own from from that uh, from that time. And Siri, you said you have hope for democracy to return in Cambodia. How, what is the role of the Cambodian diaspora? I mean, the opposition is in exile. How how do you see a, a way forward? The Cambodian diaspora has played and continues to play a very significant role in the flourishing of democracy in the, um, well, not flourishing yet, but, um, and the hope is there, but it will require a fight, a peaceful fight from every corner um, within Cambodia and outside Cambodia. At the very beginning of the uh, democracy movement uh, in 1995, when I saw Sam Ramsey start the first opposition, real opposition party in Cambodia, I was inside Ca in Cambodia that time. It was the Cambodian diaspora, the Cambodians in France, in the United States, in Australia, in Canada, who fundraised and financially supported the democracy movement because everyone was poor in Cambodia except for the ruling elite. But now there are resources, financial resources among Cambodians inside Cambodia, but there's still an important role for the diaspora and they continue to be very, very active in lobbying with their senators, their representatives in the United States, France, um, wherever, um, and in networking and providing information and continue with the resources, with the financial resources. But um, um, for example, most recently, there, um, there are two pieces of uh, legislation um, going through US Congress right now on Cambodia, and that has been shaped and lobbied by the Cambodian diaspora. The Magnitsky Act, um, um, and, and the different version in Australia and Europe also have uh, been to a, a, a smaller degree because it's more general um, lobbied by the Cambodian diaspora. So they have they're very active. Oh, but I have hope as a Christian. I have hope because I have the ex I have an expectation that good will prevail. Um, but it requires that all of us who stand for justice, who stands for truth, 
do our part actively do our part. We have a role to play in this. Um, whatever faith we may um, hold, we know that the creator has made us to be agents in the process of justice, in the process of seeking truth. And truth and justice are eternal. You know, the law normally, law and justice should be friends, should be allies, should walk hand in hand, but in a place like Cambodia, in a repressive um, environment, the law is oftentimes at war with justice because the regime is very good in using law and trying to manipulate saying law and justice are the same. They're two separate entities. Justice is eternal. Law is man-made, it's temporal. And in a place like Cambodia, they're at war with each other. But we who stands with justice, who stand with truth, and truth is a weapon. We know that. We know that in the Philippines, we take um, uh, um, um, we take example and, and encouragement from from the people power movement. We've seen it in in Eastern Europe. Truth is a weapon. Truth, and you know, we think, well, Terry, you have no weapons. You have. <laughs> Truth is more powerful than a gun. We know that. We know that in history. We know that through the example of Nelson Mandela. We know that through the example of Martin Luther King Jr., through Gandhi. We know that peaceful resistance is the only way and it's the most powerful powerful weapon we have. But we, we need to be active. We can't, we can't sit by the sideline. Yeah, so within Cambodia, as you said earlier, yours is just one of the dissenting voices. So are you able to, you know, given the limitations, either watching you, you're being tried, are you able to you know, organize or inspire people to achieve peaceful change? I would, I would like to think that physical presence um, alone is an encouragement, but uh, I've been also using a lot of um, social media um, and I'm learning because I'm very limited in my uh, knowledge of social media. And of course, it's changing constantly, but it's a very powerful medium, as you know. Um, the opposition uh, supporters and officials are very, very active wherever they are. They're rallying their supporters inside and outside uh, Cambodia to be on social media. And now with COVID, everyone is on social media. So now I'm on social media a lot. Um, and I want to learn more about this medium. I'm very, very conscious that um, I have both uh, domestic and international support, even though domestic is um, uh, it's, it's hard to to understand to what degree, but Radio Free Asia and continues to be broadcast um, in Cambodia via, again, social media, even though the office inside the country has been shut down and the, the reporters um, cannot be known if they are working inside Cambodia, they have to, um, to uh, take on a, an alias. So, but information is seeping in. Independent news um, reportage um, is available within Cambodia via social media. So I'm on social media a lot, and um, but that's where everyone is. To whatever degree um, uh, my sphere of influence um, is right now, it's hard to gauge. But the 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 issue for me is 
um, what is my responsibility and to do that with with all the energy I have. Well, this is a fascinating um, sharing of your experience, theory. And on that note, we would like to thank you and for sharing us your hope. You know, uh, when look from the outside, looking at Cambodia, we're saying, oh, you know, it doesn't seem bright. But with your hope itself is quite inspiring. So we'll watch, keep watching you. Uh, we're part now of your international monitors. <laughs> and thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank you so much. And to all our listeners and viewers, uh, thank you for keeping us company and keep pushing back against autocracy and keep fighting for democracy. Thank you, Thierry, and, and we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for keeping us company. Keep pushing back against autocracy. Keep fighting for democracy. The Great Asian Pushback is produced by the Council of Asian Liberals and Democrats with the support of the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. This episode was made by Marites Vitug, Lito Arlegue, and Paolo Zamora with creative input from Jaja Hanolo, administrative assistance from Audi Frias and Chelsea Caballero, and editing by Point B Multimedia.